Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the November issue, Claire Bucknell reviews a new book that analyzes the life of Giacomo Casanova through the lens of our post-MeToo world. In Casanova's unexpurgated memoir, which became available starting in 2013, his exploits are revealed not to be suave exercises in seduction, but rather sex crimes, rape, incest, pedophilia, and other universally agreed upon awful behavior, including some unrelated to intercourse, appear throughout Histoire de ma vie. In this episode, I spoke with Bucknell about the myth of Casanova, which was not only shaped by his own writing, but by scholars and aspiring libertines who preferred to celebrate it. You tweeted recently that despite uh, the massive competition, Casanova might have been among if not the worst man of the 18th century. A very impressive title. So what exactly about him occasioned this tweet? Like what, let's let's just do a rundown of the wrongdoings for people who are just sort of like used to his name as a synonym for a uh, romantic. <laughs> oh, well, I stand by that. Um, Casanova has a stiff competition, let's say from a number of dodgy 18th century characters. Um, one, let's say, Thomas Potter MP. He was the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, he enjoyed sodomizing cows and enjoying executions a bit more, than, much more than we would hope. Um, but I still think Casanova is worse than these sort of characters, mainly because of how much he thought and wrote about all his grisly deeds. So, okay, look, quick rundown. He is... Um, a rapist multiple times. He's a gang rapist. He enjoys incest, mothers and daughters, uh, pairs of sisters, um, children in particular was one of his predilections. Um, and he wrote thousands of pages about his enjoyment of these things with sort of zero apology. And indeed his shtick was sort of, um, I'm writing this for a libertine audience. I'm not interested in morality or saying, sorry, this is who I am, take it or leave it. Um, so it's a kind of quite modern combination of really gross behavior and taking up all the space in the public sphere, which is kind of recognizable, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, you said he was writing for a libertine audience and, you know, the... The period in which he was writing uh, is when the two-sex model came into uh, existence. Can you discuss the advent of the two-sex model and Casanova's, you know, sort of response to that? Because I think it kind of helps position his writing, uh, again, not excusing what he did, but position his writing in a specific, like, cultural historical context. Yeah, so when we talk about kind of libertinism, it's a kind of 17th century and 18th century phenomenon in which um, men um, engage in sexual relations outside marriage. Um, so what would technically be called fornication in the Bible and certainly adultery and leading women astray. And there's kind of very little uh, social or legal redress for this kind of behavior. And it put women in all sorts of extremely difficult positions. Um, so I didn't actually end up writing or thinking much about the two-sex model. But Casanova, um, one of the reasons why feminists have defended Casanova is because he um, 
uh, believed that women were different but equal, or allegedly believed that women were different but equal. So they were physically different, they had different capabilities, but they were sort of interesting on their own terms. Um, so there is lots in the histoire about um, philosophizing with women at the same time as having sex with them. So he kind of sees them in, in that way, which a lot of other male libertines did not to give him credit. So he was a sapiosexual. A certain he was a sapiosexual, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, bringing up the issue of feminism, uh, you know, you write in your piece that to apply Me Too ethics, for example, to Casanova would be a kind of presentism because a lot of what he did was legal and though it was extreme, like it, it was, again, it was the time. So how can we make sense of him ethically today? Or is it just futile to even try? So Leo Damros's biography, which is um, the kind of subject of my piece. So Damros goes in for this kind of presentist approach whereby he me too's Casanova, as, as we might say, he kind of subjects him to 21st century um, feminist ethics. And it kind of doesn't work so well, because once you've said for the first time that we would now call this gang rape, this is very awful. Once you've said that once, there's not really intellectually anywhere you can go from that. You just have to say it many times every time Casanova does something that we would now rightly consider dreadful. Um, so that to me didn't seem a particularly useful approach. Um, other biographers in the past have found all sorts of cunning ways to defend him. Um, so um, Lydia Flem, a female biographer, um, defends his incest because she says it was his way of kind of defeating or fighting back against time. That if he kind of combined mother and daughter together in one sexual experience, it was, you know, playing his last card in, in the race against time, she says. So let's just say these strategies aren't necessarily that convincing. Um, so none of this really worked for me, but what I thought might work was if we considered um, the strategies in the histoire, which is this vast autobiography he wrote, and how he represents his own behavior. So how he turns to kind of 18th century ideas and fictions and strategies to justify himself. And I thought if we interrogated those, that might be a more useful way of thinking about his morality. And I guess, where does the impulse to defend Casanova come from? From, from I mean, obviously there's, there's sort of like this intellectual argument, but there's also, you know, a lot of his other biographers have, you know, tried to excuse some of the most harmful things he did. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think it comes from the kind of the compelling, the, the kind of compelling nature of his narrative. So this is someone who kind of carries us along, us along with him in this picaresque 18th century, like rollicking narrative that is somehow mostly true, even though it seems very fictional. And the reason why previous biographies kind of re-narrativize uh, his life for him is because it is very hard to resist the sweep of this sort of incredible fictional narrative. Um, but it's important we do so and try and read against the grain and read the book how Casanova would not have wanted us to read it, because that's the only way we're going to get any perspective. Right. And, you know, in addition to being uh, a serial sex pest, and a womanizer and a, he was also a scammer he relied on you know his oracular abilities to win bets and otherwise trick people into paying him 
So I guess there's something kind of American, kind of like Gatsby-like about his trickster persona. Do you think that's partly why we still mythologize him today? Yeah, I think that's an interesting thought. Um, yeah, his his uh, bogus oracular abilities are very interesting. They're very improvisatory, um, which which uh, works for a lot of, of what he did. He uh, essentially um, got himself um, a salary and a beautiful canal side residence on the basis of tricking this rich Venetian senator and um, sort of saving his life. And the senator says to him, oh my gosh, young man, you must know something of magic because you saved my life. And he says, oh, well, um, you know, now you mention it, I do actually have these oracular predictive abilities. Um, yeah, I, I don't really, and, and I can use them in all these fantastic ways. So it is this kind of improvised ability, this trickster, this con, indeed Gatsby-like. Um, he sees people's weaknesses and he preys on them. So um, later in his life, there's this episode with this wealthy uh, Parisian widow, Madame Durfey, whom he cons out of truly millions then, let alone today, millions and millions of francs, um, because she um, has deluded herself into thinking that she possesses the Philosopher's Stone as an alchemist, and all she needs is this sort of amazing young man to help her uh, become immortal. And he sees that in her, he sees those fictions that she needs to believe, and he preys on them. And was he ever held to account? <laughs> More like caught for being, you know, uh, uh, a, just a scammer. So he ended up in prison many times. I kind of discussed uh, three episodes in the piece. Um, the one that really catches them out at the beginning and is, is his worst prison sentence, the uh, Venetian um, inquisitors, who are the kind of city's sort of secretive, quite terrifying body, a lawmaking body, um, they start spying on him when it becomes clear that he is scamming Senator Bragadin and Bragadin's friends, and he's gambling, frittering away this scammed money. And so they throw him into prison. And he's in there a long time, and it is a particularly terrifying and disgusting prison, and he has to devise an escape route. Um, and he's, in fact, the only one ever to have escaped EPMB e e in Venice because it is so hard to escape from. So improvisatory again, he used the materials he had around him. Uh, but I think that's really the only time that he was properly held to account. Other prison experiences, he talked his way out of them in days. And how does that, his, his, uh, his, lovely, his lovely manner of speech, how does that impact the actual sort of shape, the, the structure of his, his autobiography, right? Like, how does that, um, does that still come through? I mean, again, if we were to temporarily separate morality from what has being written, which I'm not advising, is it still a kind of like an enjoyable text on that level, on a prose level? Um, so I would say that it's a text that's very aware of how you could read it as a novel. So in the 18th century, novels and autobiographies are kind of shifting forms and they can easily be taken for one another. And by the end of the 18th century, when Casanova is writing, he's very conscious of that blurriness between the two forms and he exploits it. So he deliberately, um, let's say, reshapes his exploits to make them fit with kind of well-known novelistic tropes. 
Um, so I talk about this in my piece. Um, one famous trope was the kind of um, sexual encounter in a carriage, because there aren't really many spaces in the 18th century where you can kind of sneak away from prying eyes and kind of get off with somebody. And a carriage is, is one, so it features in many novels. So it's no coincidence that many of Casanova's rapey sexual encounters um, take place in, in carriages in the history, because he's giving readers what they, um, what they would recognize as a kind of like sexual leitmotif. They would recognize this as meaning an exciting sexual encounter. Um, the way he writes about sex as well is very typical of the kind of pornographical writing of the time. So it's super flowery, super metaphorical. Um, he has this fav uh, favorite metaphor as of, of sex as warfare. So the penis is always a weapon. The vagina is the field of combat, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there are these strategies that would have been recognizable as, as fictional and they are sort of compelling in their own way, yeah. And I mean, do you, how do you feel like it compares to other sort of old texts that are about, you know, libertinism or just sort of detailed accounts of sex in the, in the, in the olden times, let's say, you know, something like My Secret Life or, or. It's pretty comparable. So if we think of something like um, Fanny Hill, which is a mid 18th century, super pornographical novel, um, it's sort of fairly comparable. We're using the same kind of circumlocutionary language, but which gestures so clearly to the thing that you know exactly what they're talking about at all times. Um, and it's sort of very heroic and inflated. And um, there are always you know, improbable numbers of orgasms, sort of regularly five, six during a second, that's sort of very typical of the uh, pornographic men's writing of the time. So yes, that as well would have kind of signaled that it was possibly a bit of an inflation of, of the real thing. Yeah. Just a bit. Um, are there any, are there any texts, I mean, again, this is wishful thinking. I mean, are there any texts that serve as a counterpoint or sort of center a female experience? I mean, again, it seems like this is just a wish from now applied to the past, but are there any, you know, sort of accounts of women, women's sexuality and not sort of being preyed upon by a pederast? Yeah, good question. There are. There was um, quite a popular genre of the female prostitute's tale. So these would be written by sort of celebrated sex workers who had kind of risen to the top of their industry by kind of getting the better of so many men that so they would have duped their clients in these kind of fascinating ways they would get men to pay huge sums of money to sleep with them and they would then write about these sexual encounters from a position of female victory not male and these you know sold incredibly well and as i said some sex workers kind of gained celebrity status from them so yes there was a narrative of kind of putting back but also the other way that sex workers were kind of narrativized in the 18th century was through the sentimental novel, which sort of presented them as these sort of, you know, sad victims who have no agency and are just um, at the mercy of men who take advantage of them. So, yeah, the, their agency kind of fluctuates in these literary forms. And what, I mean, I suppose the answer is obvious, but why have these... Uh, um sex workers accounts but sort of lost to time and we're left with Casanova instead and his experience is being held up as like the liter you know this great literary historical thing 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, fairly straightforward. The winners of literary history tend to be the men. And it is only later that women's stories get excavated. And until they do, all we have is women written about by men. And in Casanova's case, very perfunctorily, um, to the extent that we don't really know that he was, in fact, engaged to this French girl, Manon Bellati. We don't really know that from the histoire because he obscures that. He obscures the fact that he'd let himself get trapped once into an engagement and that wouldn't play so well for him so we don't really hear about it and the rest of the women are you know essentially kind of their playthings they have zero identity zero agency so yes sorry to ask a leading question but still have to ask are these other texts available and or is it just sort of like only uh only the curious can sort of seek them out they're not widely available, no. If you, it's the kind of thing that if you're in a university library and you have access to, you know, this sort of tale from 1736, then great. But they're not so available in modern editions. But that is that is changing as part of the kind of wider um, feminist excavation of women's writing during the 18th century, which actually is, let's say, moving a lot quicker in other genres of writing than it is in sex writing, which is possibly not that surprising. So... You know, uh, you mentioned that, you know, Casanova did get trapped um, <laughs> by by some awful woman. Uh, so, he, you know, after his adventuring days were over, you know, he sat down to write about them. And again, coming back to this question of, you know, how it's actually written, his self-writing sounds a little bit like my struggle, like a little bit. Do you think he presaged Knausgaard or other authors of autofiction? That's very interesting. Um, I don't think he has the necessary um, self-consciousness that we would associate with autofiction. Mm. So he was kind of, Stefan Zweig calls him kind of deeply unreflective. He's someone who um, is a man of action rather than a man of letters in the way that we would think about it. And Zweig even says it's kind of a miracle that we have this text at all because it's written by someone who seems... Um, sort of antithetical in every way to the business of, of reflection and, and, and thinking about oneself. Um, and that sort of comes across in the text. It is sort of deeply unselfconscious. It's fascinated with me, but only in the sense of me as an active being. So what I did and who I did today, rather than what that makes me think about myself um, so in a way, it's kind of both more and less egotistical than something like um, Knausgaard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he wrote about himself in the third person. Why? So this is true of his, um, of his sort of um, the two narratives he wrote of his exploits. Uh, one was a, a duel that he fought in Warsaw with a Polish nobleman, which he shouldn't have fought because he was not a nobleman and you weren't allowed to fight duels if you weren't, but being Casanova, he managed it. And the other was his prison escape, which he used to tell to people for hours to sit there and tell it at them. And then someone said, oh, please write, God, please write this down. So he did, and, and he uses the third person in those texts. He kind of projects himself as this hyper-heroic character. And he, it's part of his sort of, 
novelizing ambitions. You know, my life is so amazing that it might as well be a novel. And here are the ways in which I can present it as such. And he um, kind of even goes so far as to imagine the thoughts and feelings of other characters who, of course, in real life, he would not have had access to. But he novelizes them in the same way as he is. He novelizes himself. But in the historic, it's all I, 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 which is, yeah, very difficult. Yes. And I mean, aside from the soothsayer stuff, he was also into the occult. So how did this manifest during his life? Like, what sort of witchy stuff did he get up to? Yeah, so his interest in the occult starts from kind of early childhood when he has these nosebleeds that no one can cure and his childhood nurse takes him to Murano and they encounter a sort of witchy-like woman who sort of burns fragrant herbs over him and shuts him in a chest and says spells over him. And allegedly, even at the age of eight, what he took from that was people are credible idiots. So he didn't take from that, I believe in magic, he took from that, I can exploit other people's belief in magic. And of course, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. He didn't think that when he was eight, but the histoire, that's the impression the histoire gives us. So he's always fascinated in the power of magic to um, as, a, as, a, as a way of duping people. Um, so he is fascinated by alchemy, as many people in the 18th century still were. Um, there are other um, adventurers of Casanova's type who travelled around Europe duping people who pretended to be thousands of years old because they had actually found the Philosopher's Stone and were successful alchemists. So he kind of belongs to that class. Um, and he sort of does believe in his ability to predict. It starts out as kind of a game, but the better he gets at it, i.e. the better he gets at reading people and reading what they want and the answers they want to hear, he starts believing in it. Um, so I think he does start to believe in, in magic by the end, yeah. Are there, any, are there any of his predictions that were just like completely absurd and, and called out as such? Um, well, the one that we're pretty sure he made up, and, and Dan Rochdale called us out, is um, he meets this girl who's a nobody, who's the daughter of a clerk, and he says that he tells her, don't worry, girl, for you too shall join um, Louis XV's Deer Park, i.e. group of live-in mistresses. You too shall go to live at Versailles and, you know, you will be his great mistress. And she's like, oh, thank you, thank you. And then sort of 20 years later, 10 years later, lo and behold, she is instilled as one of Louis's mistresses. She gets the title. He's one of the top mistresses. So Casanova is like, I, I did this, I made this happen. Um, we're pretty sure what happened, in fact, was that he met her, and then 10 years later, he found out that she'd been installed at Versailles. So what does he do? He makes up this prediction and kind of inserts himself into her story. So yes, we're pretty sure that he, he made that one up. <laughs> um, so, I mean, uh, you know, it's, um, sorry, I'm, I'm feeling very ill. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not surprised. I felt ill for about a month whilst working on this piece, so I, I got it. <laughs> yeah, what was that? I mean, what was the what was the writing process like? I mean, again, there's been so much. Again, this figure has been built up so much, and then there's kind of this like uh, popular history of him, or sort of like a, a, an attempt to reconsider him. Like, is it? I mean, I guess sort of in your sort of background how you know how, how was the experience of writing this piece 
Yeah, I would say I would say mixed. I mean, there's certainly a, a huge volume of, of material, uh, not only Damrush's biography, but the Hisflar itself, which is, I think, sort of 1500 pages in an abridged version and maybe 3000 in the full one. Um, then there's the kind of huge background of previous biographies, which really informed the way Damrush went about things. So I wanted to read those too. Um, so it was a huge volume of, of, of stuff and a lot of it was frankly sickening and his narrative is extremely repetitive not least because his life was very repetitive and it followed certain compulsive patterns he was always in prison he was always finding pairs of twins to have sex with he was always you know just repeat 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 um because he was sort of you know highly compulsive and how he how he lived his life um so it was very hard actually to kind of resolve that into a narrative that made sense and sort of had different inflection points um, but I was certain that I wanted to read him against the grain and that made it more enjoyable because it felt like an exercise in sort of slowly unpicking each of his various inflations and, and lies. So, yeah, that, that's how I kind of got through it as it were. Do you have a sense of why we're so collectively fascinated by him and sort of the journey from this, uh, you know, this guy just writing about his sex life, possibly mostly made up to this great synonym you know this great this great uh like icon of sexuality and romance and all of these things that again really not actually in the book yeah i think that's true that i think was enabled by the fact that we haven't had the full unexpurgated manuscripts until really about sort of 10 15 years ago so before oh. that certainly in the Victorian period in the early 20th, um, it was available in this sort of highly expurgated, parts written over, parts deleted, um, much more romantic version. Um, and so the full version really has been only available in this in this Parisian um, edition since about 2015, I think. And Damrush is the first biography to really engage with that fully unexpurgated edition. Mm -hmm. So the romantic view of him, I think it's astonishing that it happened at all, even based on an unexpurgated <laughs> text, because there's very little romance in the histoire. He falls in love once, we'll give him that. He falls in love once with Henriette, not her real name, who is this mysterious aristocrat on the run. And he is astonished by her because she is clever enough to keep up with him. And she's able to enjoy his philosophizing and philosophize back. So that is the reason why he's so compelled by her. Um, but apart from that, there's very little romance in the book. And I think it, it simply must be the fact that very few people read it as it actually was for 150 years. And again, this is probably a leading question, but why, why, why did people fall for that temptation? Why, out of any sort of figure that you could possibly romanticize, why him? Does it have to do with the fact that he's Italian and there's a sense of like, oh, romance and, and sort of like, you know, this, this um, <laughs> you know, like this Mediterranean sexuality or why? I think it must have something to do with that. I think it's I think it's the period. So we're talking kind of just kind of early romantic period. So there are various set of expectations that, that kind of cohere around that. I mm -hmm. think the Italian thing, the Venetian thing definitely helps. He was very physically handsome, that much is true. We know that. So that doesn't hurt. Um so I think it must be a mixture of those things. And also that thing survives us that we do have very few adventurous men of action who are also men of letters. 
Mm. So I think that particular combination is also a kind of quite compelling one. Like here's a here's a stallion with brains, you know. <laughs> I regret that phrase. <laughs> um, well, I guess is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we haven't gotten to yet? So one thing I didn't mention in my piece, I really wanted to, but I didn't have faith, um, was about his kind of extreme sensuality when it came to everything else in his life, so not mm. just sex. And one of the ways this comes out is, is food. And there's even a book on Casanova the Gourmand. Um, mm. He writes about his the banquets he laid on to get women to sleep with him in sort of remarkable detail, the richest food, the most luxurious things, truffles, etc. Um, but there's a there's a really extraordinary passage at the beginning of the histoire where he says um, um, basically that he's always wanted the most sensual extremes in all areas of his life, and he says. Um, I have always liked highly seasoned dishes, good sticky salt cod from Newfoundland, high game on the very edge, and cheeses whose perfection is reached when the little creatures which inhabit them become visible. As for women, I have always found that the one I was in love with smelled good, and the more copious her sweat, the sweeter I found it. So women here are kind of like cheeses on the edge or game that's about to go moldy. So it's just like extreme like vision of sensuality that's pushing it to the very boundaries and which sort of ties in with his extremity of his, of his sexuality in general. But yeah, so food is like a kind of weird sensual key to how he thinks about other things. And I, I yeah did want to write about that, but didn't have enough time. Hmm. Wasn't... Wasn't his sort of like obsession with oysters part of part of how, you know, its association with aphrodisiacs? Because, again, it's like there are so many different ways that his legacy is felt throughout culture that it's almost it's kind of hard to trace them. I think that's right. And that's one of that's one of the many, many kind of buried little lines of myth that kind of connect them to, to contemporary culture. Yes, because otherwise it's it's pretty astonishing that oysters have ended up having this aphrodisiac <laughs> reputation, not only because they're so unsexy as oysters, you know, these kind of little <laughs> slippery mollusks, but also because they were such a common food in, in the past. You know, you would have beef and oyster stew and you just lob a few oysters in because they were cheap. So it is pretty extraordinary they have ended up with the cachet they do. And I, I definitely think that Casanova's oyster habit contributed. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for this uh, sensual, <laughs> sensual talk. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much. It was indeed highly central. <laughs> You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montagani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.